0: Welcome to episode 180, Therapy or Coaching? Differences and Similarities Worth Knowing. Featuring Dr. London Miller, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist and Master Certified Life Coach. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This episode is proudly sponsored by Best Notes Electronic Health Record, software built for practices poised for growth and compliance. Visit bestnotes.com slash clearlyclinical for a free demonstration. Hello to our listeners. My name is Bethy Riaz, and I am delighted to be joined again by my dear colleague, Dr. London Miller. London is a licensed marriage and family therapist and She has been investing quite a bit of time in understanding the differences and similarities between therapy and coaching. And goodness knows this is a hotly contested topic. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Miller. It's delightful to have you back again.
1: Thank you for having me,
0: Beth. Pleasure to be back. So why don't you tell our listeners a bit about you and your background, and then also your interest and experience with this particular topic?
1: Absolutely. I've been in the field for about 10 years now. I am now in a solo private practice, and I started in community mental health with a lot of trauma clients. Uh, Now I specialize with Black, Indigenous persons of color, creative professionals, um, highly sensitive people— and I do a lot of trauma therapy. I um, also am certified as a master certified life coach, and um it's it's great just being able to offer a diverse you know selection of services, not just therapy but coaching and consultation as well. And uh, yeah, I like to work on partnerships with uh awesome progressive folks like yourself. So yeah,
0: that's me. Awesome. So. Coaching and therapy. I feel like this line was always a little bit blurry. It got blurrier, I think, due to the pandemic and the increase in telehealth care. Um, if you don't mind telling our listeners, why does coaching versus therapy or and therapy matter to you personally?
1: Okay, therapy and coaching matters to me because it gives people like a holding container where they can see their own minds. And where they can get support and honestly also learn how to coach themselves. You know, they they, they'll gain the tools to learn how to hold themselves accountable and um, hold themselves uh, responsible and and become more motivated to become the person that they want to be or the person that they really are. There there's not one is better than the other. They're just different. Therapy is its own thing. Coaching is own thing. There are some similarities. Like I said, one is not better than the other. They're just different.
0: So for you, knowing that you tend to work a lot virtually, you have this additional certification in coaching. Can we start by just defining what is therapy with including counseling and social work? So we're talking about licensed professionals in mental health care in the United States, in that category of quote unquote therapy? And then what is coaching? Like define those just so we have some
1: place to start. Absolutely. So, psychotherapy is defined under state law, which is important to keep in mind. And under state law, it's defined as the application of therapeutic uh, systems, theories, principles, and different ways of delivering services to individuals, couples, or groups in order to assess and treat relational issues, emotional disorders, mental illness, alcohol and substance abuse, and behavioral problems. And that definition,
0: you and I, uh, as we have this conversation, are both licensed and located in California. Is there a big change in the definition of therapy or mental health care across states? Or is this pretty standard?
1: You know, that's a good question. I'm I'm not sure about that one. So yeah, I have no idea on that one.
0: So as you and I record this, you just mentioned state law. You and I are recording and both licensed in California. And for our listeners, it is important to understand what your particular state and jurisdiction consider psychotherapy. So just for the sake of this conversation, there really isn't a national standard We could look at Webster's Dictionary and we could come up with some ideas here. Um, But it sounds like really from the definition you just gave for California, it's grounded primarily in the treatment of a recognized diagnosed mental health condition. Is that right? That's right. And what happens when you close the book on therapy and open the book on coaching. And we try to define that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, um, segueing into the definition of coaching, I'll first share that I'll be using the international coaching federations definition of coaching. The ICF is the largest, most recognized global accreditation organization for professional coaches in the world. It's not a licensing board. They're not regulated by the government. They're just, they're a big organization that has set standards for people who want to get training as a professional coach anywhere in the world. So according to the ICF, coaching is a present and future focused process that offers clients a safe space, validation, curiosity to help them get to where they want to be. Interesting.
0: So it sounds like if we're thinking of a definition of therapy being almost more medical exactly, and formal, then coaching is more about growth.
1: Is that right? Sure. sure. Yeah. Um, uh, I would say growth or short and long-term goals or life transitions, you don't explore the past in coaching according to the ICF.
0: Interesting. So can you elaborate on that? I mean, because I think any therapist listening is like, we love unpacking your child.
1: (laughs) Right. We love to know the why. Yeah. For the the most part, we're
0: all about the insight. Um, With with the exception (laughs) of of some particularly uh, present and future-focused evidence-based practices and methods, we tend to really like the insight and the past stuff.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, with coaching, like I said, it's uh, just – pulling from the, with with coaching you're not giving advice it's a lot of questions that you're asking a lot of reflecting think of humanism client centered therapy a lot of so what i'm Sensing or what I'm hearing you say. Am I getting that right? And that's the heart and soul of coaching is giving those reflections back to clients based on what they're saying, sitting in silence, asking them a lot of questions, which are also similar to motivational interviewing questions. There are also elements of solution focus therapy interventions, which are used in coaching as well. And so it's, it's really honoring the client's genius. And that's what I love about coaching so much, because after almost 10 years of providing therapy now, like, you know, burnout is real. And you're re- I'm resourcing clients a lot. And I love trauma therapy. Don't get me wrong. But coaching does give me a nice balance where I'm not always that <laughs> expert in the room or the person with the psychoeducation. The clients are know themselves the best you know it's it's giving client that autonomy to be the expert on their own life and asking them like what's important to you about this what has worked you know around this issue what are the blocks and just keep keep meeting them where they're at and asking them those questions until they're really able to experience breakthrough so you just tapped into something there is so
0: much here to unpack, and in my mind, I'm like making a Venn diagram. <laughs> <I'm> like, here, <laughs> yeah, here's what's over here, here's what's over there, here's right. the overlap. Um, we live in an environment that previously had been heavily focused in mental health care. So again, therapy, quote unquote, on not only formal diagnosis but also evidence based practices. We are, I think, almost. Not necessarily moving away from that, but getting to a place of more acknowledgement that there is more to mental health care than dialectical behavior therapy, than cognitive behavior therapy. And now the research, anybody listening knows that I'm a complete feedback-informed treatment nerd. Everything you just said is so consistent with the work by doctors Barry Duncan and Scott Miller, looking at the power of the relationship and making the client the expert instead of really walking in and kind of owning the space, like very counter to the early origins of Freud as expert, won't even look at you. You can't see me. let me tell you what you're doing <laughs> wrong and where it's coming right. from. Mm-hmm. Completely different. Um, why does coaching exist? Like when did it come into existence? I think this is a this is a controversial topic. Like the discussion about coaching, if you're in the average group of therapists, If you come up with the word coach and do your air quotes around the word, I think you're going to get a lot of reactions of like, that's not real treatment. Can you speak to some of that of like, why does coaching exist? And what is the importance of it in the realm of mental wellness, uh, life satisfaction, if you will?
1: I have no idea why it exists, but I will say that um, a lot of that uh, maybe (sighs) – disdain or judgment towards coaching does feel a little bit cultural because it is a wild west Uh, field or, you know, it's not as regulated, unfortunately, like in any field, though, there are, you know, bad apples and good apples. So like, yeah, because there's no license or government standard that you can literally wake up tomorrow and say, I want to teach people how to make beaded bracelets as a coach and charge them as much as you want. And you're not going to get disciplined for that. So I think some people have maybe taken it pretty far and have been unethical. And there have been cult-like, you know, you know, groups created around coaching. And again, because there's no licensing board that's regulating it. So unfortunately, there have been some pretty, you know, scary, um, very highly unethical practices that have gone on um, with coaching, but the same can be true for therapists as well. I think the fact
0: that you're pulling from an international body to look at the definition, I think just that is important to remember. Um, As we are here in the United States, we've really defined and regulated, created legal and ethical codes to guide mental health care. And that is not necessarily true in other places. You know, we've done interviews in the past with folks who have been located in other countries. And they've said, you know, well, at least where I am, I can basically just hang up a sign on my door and create a business card. And now I'm a therapist. Now I am a coach. I am whatever I declare myself to be. And there's nobody – regulating that, knowing that this is just your opinion as you straddle both of these worlds as a licensed therapist and as certified coach, is it a good thing or a bad thing that it's unregulated? Like, how do you feel about that aspect of it, that it is the
1: Wild West? I don't feel super comfortable with it, but I feel more comfortable that I have received training and certification. And eventually I do want to pursue credentialing. You know, Your main worry as a coach is a lawsuit. And, you know, I think it's wise to always just do what you're doing, whether that's writing notes or creating your business structure or plan with the idea that, you know, one day I can end up in a court of law or under, you know, questioning by someone, what am I going to say? So the fact that I've received training does give me some accountability or liability in my favor that I'm doing what I can to adhere to some type of standard set by an established association. And I would say the more more important piece of the receiving training as a professional coach, it can reduce your liability mm, a lot. Okay. So now
0: I want to take a little bit of a track into conversation about law and ethics. As you and I are recording this, it's mid 2023, and the telehealth landscape looks dramatically different than it did five years ago. Like, five years ago, coming across a telehealth therapist, like they were unicorns. Like, there were not that many of them. Now, almost all of us, for various reasons, have had to do telehealth um and i think it's complicated i know it has been even for me it it's complicated now because the pandemic created flexibility in telehealth that didn't exist before so as it stands for this recording in general you are required to be ad- administering services to individuals who are located in the state where you are licensed. So even if you live in Minnesota, but you're licensed in Nevada and you have clients in Nevada, that's fine. Um, but things opened up with the pandemic, and then laws also started changing and getting more restrictive again. So we have an environment where we have therapists that may have been working across state lines for years with clients because the laws were permitting us to. And then that changed because the law changed again. And recently, we had the declaration that the state of emergency had ended. So now you have these therapists that are stuck between a rock and a hard place about, I have a client that's out of state that I've been caring for. And certainly, I've heard the conversation come up of like, then do we just call it coaching? Can you speak to that? Because I think, right, you know, again, as we record this, knowing that there are conversations going on about moving toward a national licensure, or at least reciprocity in states, That hasn't happened yet. Those conversations are happening. But in the absence of that, how do you feel ethically, legally, when you have a therapist that says, okay, well, I'm no longer going to call it therapy. We're just going to call it coaching because then it's unregulated.
1: Well, I think it goes back to the point I made of, you know, always wanting to do what you do as a therapist uh, with the idea of, you know, I can be audited at any time, you know, just, just... dotting your eyes crossing your T cyA so you know practicing therapy but calling it coaching would be a form of like misleading the, the public or the client and that would be considered fraudulent according to camped so that that's a that's a sticky one that you know I would suggest probably st- how close do you want to get to the fire basically <laughs> you know for the folks who aren't
0: in California the body that uh London just referenced as California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists. And as part of her preparation for this conversation, she reached out to these various uh, legislative and governmental bodies to really understand, like, what are the implications of this. And so, just to restate, you're saying, camped, camped, at least California is saying, don't do that. You can't do therapy and call it coaching in order to be able to kind of sidestep the regulations. Correct. So, if we're not doing that, because we don't want to sidestep regulations and do something unethical. What does true coaching actually look like? You've already touched on it and you've provided the definition. From what you were saying, it sounds like part of it. So coaching doesn't look into the past. Does coaching do any psychoed? Like tell me, like, where where in the Venn diagram does coaching like really stand apart of like coaching does not include? So diagnosis.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Coaches cannot lawfully treat a client's mental health DSM diagnosis, so you're not marketing yourself as, I'm a depression coach or I treat anxiety. You can treat the symptoms of those diagnoses, like I can work with your sadness, I can help you uh, learn how to... Cope with your racing thoughts if you're if you have anxiety or excessive sweating or heartbeat, but you can't market. And and this is really important in your intake calls with potential coaching clients. We want to be clear if you're offering coaching that, hey, I don't treat diagnoses per se. You know, I don't, I don't treat your DSM diagnosis. So that's, those are two points of what coaching includes. Coaching doesn't offer a lot of advice according to the ICF. It's really pulling all of that from the client because a lot of times like clients already know in the back of their minds what they need to do, maybe deep down. And instead of answering directly, if a, co- if a client asks you for advice, you can answer and say, well, what are you hoping that I say? Or what are you expecting for me to say? It's that that frame is a little bit different. Now, if you're further along and you specialize in in an area that you're working with, like say you specialize in career coaching, or you specialize with business executives, you can offer a suggestion, but that's later in the treatment, you know, and kind of towards the end of a session, but you don't really harp on that too much. You're not giving, you're not giving advice and you only work in the present and the future. As I mentioned, um, if trauma comes up from the past or, um, things from a client's past that are interfering with the coaching process, then you need to refer them to a therapist.
0: And if we are doing coaching and we, I'm just including any licensed or even pre-licensed registered professional, mental health professional. We're delivering coaching, quote-unquote coaching, but it's really just therapy that's no different. Our paperwork stays the same. Our consent stays the same. Is that unethical? Is that illegal? Or is it both? And I know illegal is a strong term. We'll say violation of legal guidelines or mandates. How how does that work out? It's like, so are, are you potentially going to get slapped on the wrist by an ethics board And have some kind of consequence or can it go as far as you're going to lose potentially lose your license because you're misrepresenting yourself
1: yes according to the California Association of marriage and family therapists it is unlawful and you can be accused of practicing therapy unlawfully without a license so would that be a coach that's offering therapy even though they're not a licensed professional That would be a therapist who's offering therapy, but calling it coaching. Interesting. And
0: what about, if you know the answer to this question, what about coaches who are unlicensed mental health professionals? So they don't, let's say, don't have any formal training. They hung up a sign and said, I am a life coach. Um, Tell me about where that goes sideways, just so we can understand. Like if there isn't a licensing or ethical body – that's managing this. There's just kind of the certification. You already alluded to some of the unethical stuff and not good stuff that's happened. Can you expand on that and kind of set the frame for like, oh, this is where coaching goes bad. And when it, things are bad and ugly, this is what it looks like.
1: I mean, I think at that point, you're just risking, you know, hurting people you know, and, and just really, maybe it can hurt your reputation if you're only trained in coaching and now you're trying to dive into the past with no formal training or specialized education, that's extremely harmful to someone, you know, and, um, your worst, uh, worry as a coach, as I mentioned, is a lawsuit. So if you have someone who's litigious or they have some type of trauma that gets reactivated and God forbid, you know, they have a nervous breakdown or things go really South. And you're worried about a lawsuit as a coach, but that's your biggest fear is that would come from a client. You know, you don't have any regulatory board that's following up with you on that no licensing board as a coach.
0: So just to be clear, even if there isn't a regulatory board, like for us, we're needing to abide in California by business and professions code, for example, if there isn't a particular law that we can point out and say this is a violation, it doesn't mean that you are there for- free to do whatever you want and call it whatever you want. It just means that the legal implications are potentially different than if you were a licensed professional.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And another um, caveat with coaching is that, um, well, two things, coaching clients don't have the same rights to confidentiality as therapy clients. They have rights to privacy. So that means like if you're a coach and you receive a subpoena from court, you're obliged to send it on over. There's no checking in with the client. There's no, you know, delaying that or any kind of challenging that you're obliged to send that over to the court of law. And the second detail of, of, of coaching is when you're a coach, you created a coaching agreement or coaching acknowledgement, you are not to offer an informed consent to your client as that implies medical care. And that is not under the the guise of coaching. That's a therapeutic thing. Can you restate that? (laughs) That was a really important point right there. (laughs) Right. So as a coach, you are only to offer a coaching agreement or coaching acknowledgement you are not allowed to offer an informed consent to your coaching client. Informed consent implies a medical service. That's deep, huh? <laughs> yeah. Little legal
0: ethical nerd me is just taking that in because, yes, that makes perfect sense that informed consent is a essentially a legal medical process. So what you're saying makes complete sense. That just has really big implications for a mental health professional that's been told since very early on, informed consent, informed consent, you need to say here are right. the risks and benefits and how much it's going to cost and yada, yada, yada. And this is like, nope, you can't do that. And if you do, that's effectively therapy, not coaching. Nice try.
1: Right. And you know, it's wise as a coach too. you, you can touch on some of the um, risks and benefits and how with how this will work in coaching I'm not going to explore your past it's actually imperative that you do that in the beginning of an intake call with clients so their expectations are clear and then and so they can be clear on is this a good fit for me is this what I need oh shoot maybe I just need a therapist like (laughs) because I have some past stuff from back in the day that is still unresolved um so it's it's a it's imperative in those intake calls that you're very clear in in the contract you can call a coaching contract as well, um, what that will look like for your time together. Um, you're just not using the language, informed consent cannot be on there. So,
0: you've already covered some of the ideas of you know, what coaching is and what coaching is not. I think one of the areas of confusion that exists for licensed mental health professionals is offering one or the other. So, if you have a licensed social worker, that offers counseling, so licensed mental health service. And they also offer coaching from an advertising standpoint. What does that look like? Because if we look at the average licensed therapist website, it's loaded, usually with information, like I treat depression, or I work with folks who have bipolar disorder, or that are struggling with addiction or whatever. So we're talking about diagnoses, can it be on the same website to say, oh, P.S., I also do coaching?
1: It can. According to the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists, it can be a good idea to create a separate website for coaching. However, it's not required. But when you have, I would say, you, if you're a therapist who's also offering coaching, you definitely want to do your best to maybe create a separate page Designated just for coaching. Be very clear on what it is is not and what it is. The language that you use will be different. It will be a little bit more generalized. Um, something like, you know, goal setting or life transitions or helping you gain more accountability or reach a specific goal in your life. Not I'm treating a DSM diagnosis. Or exploring your your family of origin, so you want to just be really clear, probably from the onset on your website about the differences. It be, may be helpful to give it, give that in an FAQ section or something like that. It's really important.
0: And again, for our listeners, London's located in California, so we're talking a lot about California law. But other states have these same legal and ethical mandates, it's just a matter of knowing what they are. So if you have questions for your particular jurisdiction, make sure you're reaching out to your legal ethical body and saying, hey, how do you define coaching? How do you define therapy? Do I have to have a second website? Like, can I have any website at all? What about my business cards? Um, I think these are all important considerations. And London already mentioned the idea about informed consent. So therefore, if we are required in our state to have a quote unquote informed consent, we cannot use that for coaching clients. So we really, so electronic health records, could we have an electronic health record for therapy clients? That's also keeping notes for coaching. How is the medical necessity piece of therapy notes different from the note that a coach is keeping can you speak to some of that i mean this is there's a lot here and i just want to note that this is why why london is saying there are different trainings that you can do to understand this and we're only talking about this for an hour but like there there are lots of layers to the administrative implications of therapy versus coaching
1: seriously like such an um... An amazing question, Beth. Yeah. I mean, as a coach, you're not required to keep notes at all. (laughs) You know, like you're really not. Um, but yes, if you are a therapist and you're offering coaching, absolutely you can include your coaching notes in your EHR. Yes, you can. But if you are a licensed therapist and you're also offering coaching, when you're in that role of coach, you don't have to adhere to your ethics from your licensing board and your guidelines. And that was uh, pretty eye-opening to me because I was thinking I would still be required to be like a mandated reporter if I'm doing coaching. But according to my licensing board, I'm not required to adhere to my ethics when I'm in the coaching role.
0: Even if you're not required to, can you if it's part of consent? That is, I don't know if you know the answer to that question. question, but if you say in your agreement with a coaching client, I am not operating as a psychotherapist right now, I am not a mandated reporter. However, if I fear for your safety or the safety of somebody else, I may call 911. Are you allowed to do that as a coach?
1: You are allowed. As a coach, you know, if there are general safety concerns that you're having about a client, you are um, encouraged to call the authorities about that. Absolutely. So, but that is something smart, as you mentioned, a note in your contract. Thinking about myself as the documentation nerd that I
0: am, you know, conversations about mental status exam, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that coaches should not be completing a mental status exam, nor should it be documented in their progress note, or a formal treatment plan. Like, can you can you speak to that side of like, how to conceptualize the day to day kind of administrative stuff for a coach? So are, are you keeping notes? What are you expected to do? Are you not expected to do anything at all? Like <laughs>
1: <laughs> how does one do this? <laughs> I mean, you're expected to make your contract really, um, verbose and detailed as possible. You're, you're expected to maybe consult a, conter- a- attorney to review your contract or your acknowledgement as a coach to be very, um, detailed as, as detailed as you can, <clears throat> excuse me, around pricing and you know, how long we'll be working together. And if, if a client is not the right fit and you've had a couple sessions or a few sessions but they've already paid you for a package you you are to refund them for the rest of the money you know that that they did not use for those sessions but um yeah assessments are off the table in coaching because assessments fall under the state definition of psychotherapist that's what a therapist does
0: so From a practical standpoint, a coach meeting with a client for the first time and wanting to understand what that client is looking for and whether or not the coach feels qualified to do that, if not an assessment, what does one
1: call? (laughs) (laughs) Right. You'd call it an intake call. Okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And... The awesome part about um, receiving trainings uh, f- through coaching is you get a lot of resources that are uh, like assessments. There, There's like a, a life wheel. I don't know if you've ever heard of the life wheel where it has the different super awesome. It has different categories in a person's life like career, love, personal growth, health. Family, and then the client will rate how satisfied they are in those areas. So there are like assessment like tools for coaching. They're just not, um, you know, familiar in the psychology world or counseling world. They're not, yeah.
0: And are there essentially standards of care within the coaching realm like that? So if someone is a certified coach with ICF, for example, is it expected that if you do an intake, these are the things you're going to typically do even though it's not regulated.
1: Yes. Yes. Those are the expectations. Again, you don't have a licensing board that you can call and ask these questions to, but like CYA, how close do you want to get to the fire? If things ever do go south for whatever reason, you know, you have those standards to, you know, reference if you're ever questioned. And it sounds like when in doubt,
0: if you're working with a coaching client, if anything is, if you're wondering if something is kind of outside your scope for coaching, the answer is really either look to ideally a certifying by body if you have one, and if you are certified, but otherwise to really refer out that if someone's talking about flashbacks, and it's outside your scope of practice as a coach, then even though you are qualified over here, but not in that role over there, you need to say that's something you should really talk about with the therapist. Let me give you referrals.
1: Exactly. And that's why I, like again, like I mentioned, it's it's wise to receive some type of training as a coach because you meet a really big network of other coaches who you can consult with, and that's really helpful. Just similar to how licensed therapists have networking, you know, groups that they consult with, Facebook groups that that does exist for coaches, but it's harder to access if you don't have some kind of formal training because people. It's again, it's a wild west, and um. Yes. I forgot the rest of your point that you just made, but yeah.
0: No, you, you covered it. And I think I'm just curious for you to be part of the ICF network and to see very clearly the difference between coaching and therapy and know where that line is. Do you find that there are a lot of licensed professionals operating as coaches or do you find that the majority and this is just purely based on your experience, like your interactions? I know you're not speaking for this is the field in general, Um, but do you find that there are a good number of licensed mental health professionals in the coaching space or is it really a minority?
1: Up until this point, what I've been exposed to, I've only noticed a minority of licensed therapists to also offer coaching. And I hope that changes because I think therapists have an extra maybe advantage in the coaching room because of the counter transference awareness that we have about our own stuff and in the coaching trainings and the coaching environments i notice it does attract business people you know medical doctors or lawyers engineers and counter transference and self of therapist work are not Inherent in those backgrounds. So I, I saw a little bit more potential for some trans, strong transference, counter transference issues arising with professionals who don't have that training. It, not to say that they don't have the self-awareness to check themselves, but, um, it's not really inherent in their training. Yeah. And, and like, like you said, if you're trained as a coach, you will be trained to notice trauma and anytime flashbacks are coming up or triggers or anything from the past that are interfering with the coaching goals. And then you'd refer them to a therapist, but a a client can also see, can see a therapist and coach at the same time though.
0: Yeah. So when that happens and let's say you're the licensed therapist and the client is also in coaching. So relationship coaching, career coaching, and I side note, Is there usually like a defined type of coaching like that it's like is it like i'm a relationship coach i'm a career coach do coaches tend to kind of niche out the way that therapists do
1: it's recommended it's it is very common to niche out relationship family coach life coach spiritual coach at this time I'm I'm more generalized just as a life coach but it is recommended to niche down so you can attract your ideal client.
0: Okay. But so so you are a licensed professional and your psychotherapy client is also receiving services from a potentially licensed but operating as an unlicensed certified or uncertified coach. Is it best practice? for you to be in contact with that person so when you come at it from a therapy standpoint if i'm working on communication let's say communication skills between family members in therapy as a licensed therapist and there is also an occupational therapist working with one of the young adults Typically, best practice would be for me to have a relationship with that OT and to be able to delineate here's what I'm doing, here's what you're doing, here's any overlap, here's how we're very clear about who's staying in what lane. Is the same true for coaching that we really should have a relationship with that person?
1: Good question. I would encourage listeners to refer to their state licensing board to ask about that. And I would say it also depends on the case and the client. Like, I've had a client who was like a trauma client and they uh, were also in coaching. I never consulted with the coach because the 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 necessity for it never arose. But I think that's a, a clinical judgment and a case by case.
0: Okay. Thank you. That's that's an important point. The other thing that I'm thinking about while we're talking about this in terms of documentation and your point about informed consent, I'm imagining myself training and providing a definition of medical necessity, which really at the root of it, is that there is some kind of condition, and we are treating that condition. Like That's basically what medical necessity is, just to really strip it down. And again, that's as a licensed professional. Coaching, by definition, cannot meet medical necessity because it's not a medical service, which also means it's not covered by insurance. So one thing that I've encountered... If you are working, let's say, at a facility that treats disordered eating, for example, there are pretty clear diagnostic criteria defining here's what XYZ diagnosis is, here's the standard of care, here's what level of care we're talking about, here are the required services. And generally, that's either coming from um, a standard of care within the field or even within um, certifying or accrediting body and insurance requirements if you are a therapist operating as a coach, your client cannot seek reimbursement from an insurance company for your services because there's no billing code associated with it because it's not a medical service. There's no diagnosis code. Therefore, there's no clinical code. Does a super bill exist or is, this, is, it, is a super bill, quote unquote, a medical service and really what you're talking about is a receipt?
1: Good question. Ooh, you 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 are detailed with the documents. I love it. it. I love it. Do you do billing on the side? Like, (laughs) no, but I work
0: with lots of billers and coders. So I I don't do that, but I I've been involved in so many audits um, and and part of facilities and their accrediting and corrective actions that I've seen these things play out. Um, Right. So I guess that's another part of the intake paperwork is to say very clearly, you coaching client cannot – well, no, I guess you could ask your insurance to pay you back, but chances are they're not going to (laughs) because this isn't a service, this is coaching.
1: That's right. I would uh, tell clients to call their insurance companies and ask them if a super Superbill would exist for coaching because I have no idea if one would exist or not. But according to the ICF and how I was trained, an invoice or receipt is appropriate. Interesting. So really quick note for our listeners. Um, I had a wonderful conversation
0: with Dr. Jetta Robinson a number of years ago talking about in and out of network billing. If you have any questions about what we are talking about today, um, in this conversation with Dr. Miller relating to insurance billing and the whole in and out of network piece, what is a super bill? My recommendation would take a listen to that episode with Dr. Ajeda Robinson, because she talks in great detail about some of these nitpicky pieces about what is a super bill, what needs to be on it. But it sounds like the run of the mill therapist that goes, okay. I can no longer see a client in that state because the laws have changed even though it's telehealth and it was fine before and i you know i'm just going to call a spade a spade therapists are in a tough spot with this because there's also this the other piece of like client abandonment like we have no control over what a governor is going to sign in or out of law and so I know for me, I'm not alone in this, but I absolutely watched it happen, that I'm seeing a client that's in this state and they move there temporarily or whatever else, and it was fine by the laws and regulations because of the COVID-19 emergency. And then, at least for me, what is fine in this state suddenly changes in April, but in that state, it's still okay, but it may be reviewed next January. And it's it starts getting very complicated and you can see why therapist at some point might go, well, then we're just going to call it coaching. But it sounds like from what you're saying, you're really opening up legal and ethical liability by doing so. And it's not as simple as just saying, well, now I'm a coach, quote unquote, it really is a deliberate review and creation of a whole separate practice
1: with all the stuff a practice necessitates. That's right. That's right. Because A part of our training as licensed therapists is to not mislead the public or our client in any way. And um, if, like, say that a therapist did want to transition a therapy client to coaching, like legitimately change the whole structure of the service and what's discussed in session, that's a little bit more stickier and trickier than a coaching client Transitioning to therapy with that same provider because just the nature of what you're discussing in therapy is deeper, and you know, going to a coaching conversation is completely different. You know, a, a coaching client who's coming from therapy, they may ask you for advice <laughs> as as their coach, and you 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 can't give them that advice. You're not at least under my training, and that can be you don't want to put the client in distress and wanting to decrease the distress on the client as much as possible in that process is is best practice
0: so you just opened up another direction that we hadn't talked about yet so here i am talking about therapist to coaching and you're you just introduced what about coaching to therapy which in my brain goes straight to dual relationship can you talk about that and like how does a coach who is also a licensed mental health professional conceptualize okay now i'm going to cease coaching with this client's consent and now informed consent and all of that good stuff and start doing psychotherapy can you speak to kind
1: of how that process situation unfolds absolutely say you're working with a coaching client for 3 or 4 months and some past traumas keep coming up and they're it's they're it's interfering with their progress and their goals for coaching and that client is open to therapy with you, then you are allowed to transition them to therapy. But you, you need to be super clear. Yeah, it's different forms. It's different documentation. You're transitioning to them to a whole different system of care. And you need to be really clear with the client about what that would look like all right, cool. Now we're doing therapy. Now we're doing EMDR counseling. Cool. But then you cannot switch them back to coaching after you've switched them to therapy. You can't flip flop. So once they go from coaching to therapy, now they're your therapy client and they need to stay your therapy client. You can't switch them back to being a coaching client. So when you say that a therapist can't do that, where is that coming from? Is that
0: a therapy guideline? Is that a coaching thing that's saying kind of know your role and stay in your lane? Is it a best practice? Like where is that that guidance coming from?
1: That guideline is coming from the licensing board. My licensing board as a marriage and family therapist of do no harm, you know, reduce distress for a client. Like, because again, that can cause anxiety, confusion, irritation for the client. So yeah, that's coming from the licensing board as a therapist.
0: That's really interesting. Thank you for making
1: that point. It sounds like a huge component of this, even if
0: we're not technically calling it informed consent because of the medical implication of coaching is in fact about informed consent, being very clear with a client of here are the boundaries of what I can and cannot do. Um, I touched on it earlier and I'm realizing we didn't talk much about it. Do coaches keep notes? Is there a liability reduction associated with keeping notes, or is there potentially on the flip side even more liability associated with keep- keeping notes? Like, what's best
1: practice? Right. Good question. It is encouraged to keep notes, or coaches are encouraged to keep notes, but they're not required to. They're not required to.
0: How do you feel about notes? Like, from uh, you've said, like, while there's no regulating body, there are absolutely potentials for lawsuits. Do you feel like a coaching note that doesn't include the things you can't do? So it's not talking about diagnosis or psychoeducation or past trauma or whatever else. It sounds like it is best practice to CYA and still have some kind of documentation about what's happening so that there's some record.
1: Indeed. I think it's wise to keep notes as a coach, even if they're extremely brief. Again, I think that can uh, reduce your liability and keep you prepared in the worst case scenario of anything going south. And, you know, I think a part of that belief that I have comes from my training as a therapist because I do believe documenting is good clinical care. It's providing a good quality of care for us to keep track of progress And it gets the content out of our brains and onto paper. So we're not carrying it. There's no way I can remember everything that we've talked about between sessions. So I do believe it's good quality of care.
0: There's so much here, Dr. Miller. Like As we're talking about it, I, I just feel like we tap onto some topic and it just opens up so many implications. Give me an example of a coaching session. So like I could I could sit here and I could come up with you know my nerdy progress note that has so many interventions saying therapist assisted client and identifying pros and cons associated with blah 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 in order to da 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 da, da using X Y Z intervention method you know like whatever like I could do that but like what what does a coaching session look like just for those of us that are really not familiar with this concept because you've kind of said like here's here's what it is here's what it's not but like boots on the ground. If you spend a 50-minute hour with somebody doing coaching,
1: what are you talking about? Right. Well, I'll go ahead and use the content of our in, of our discussion today as uh, what we can talk about. So Beth, you and I have been talking a lot about the differences in co- of coaching and similarities between coaching and what that includes and what's not included. Am I getting that right? So it's a
0: lot of clarifying and bringing back. And you're... So what's interesting is you've said it's not advice, and by definition, ICF is saying coaching is not advice, right? And therapy and advice also controversial. We have an episode featuring uh, Stephen and Andrew called "Violence of Advice," where he's unpacking this idea <laughs> of telling telling somebody what to do. If I were in your shoes, I think you should blah 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 blah, or like it would be a good idea to give them a call. Um, I think it is for the purposes of our conversation. I think it's important to be really clear of like neither of these modalities include advice. And just out of curiosity, if it's not at in therapy, not supposed to, right, right? if it's not in therapy <laughs> and it's not in coaching,
1: where does advice come from? <laughs> I love this question. It's so interesting because as therapists, at least in my training, I went to a counseling master's program and we're we're trained not to give advice, but... We give advice all the time. And I would say in trauma therapy, that's a caveat where I would say psychoeducation. Psychoeducation is the first component in trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, psychoeducation is vital to so many different approaches, evidence-based therapeutic approaches. So you see that contradiction in our own training? Like, it's so interesting. Yeah. Well, and it's, and I've thought about that too of like, where does even
0: psychoeducation cross the line into advice? And also, from what you're saying in terms of coaching, are coaches allowed to do any psychoeducation?
1: You can, but you don't want that to be the. Focus of your sessions, you don't want that to take up too much time. As I mentioned, giving suggestions was actually included in my second training, my level two training, my level one training as a coach through the Certified Life Coach Institute, which are accredited by ICF level one of that training. We just focused on reflecting, mirroring some other coaching questions are like, what's important to you? About this coaching topic, Beth. You know what's important to you about this issue. What's important to you about learning how to parasail? Why is this goal coming up for you at this time of your life? A lot of like those motivational yeah, like interviews questions based Ex- discovery. Mm-hmm. Okay, exactly, exactly. So the psychoeducation is more of an advanced concept in professional coaching if you're receiving training because there are ADHD coaches. Um, but you just want to be really careful with that because advice giving in any capacity, but particularly with coaching, that can sort of, um, decrease the client's autonomy and, you know, self-efficacy. And that's a component that I really love about coaching is that I don't give advice. I really love that because it, it does decrease that dependency that the client will have on us, which is a huge component of, in therapy, right? So, how
0: about self-disclosure in coaching?
1: Yeah, that's something that's discouraged because from a conversational intelligence lens, although it's well-meaning and it's it can be really humane and grounding and connecting, it's actually a block to communication. And it can yeah, just take the focus away from the problem and the content and very subconsciously and inadvertently it can make the Conversation more about the the provider, and but it's interesting because as a therapist, I may I still may self disclose from time to time, but in my role as a coach, I I'll stay away from that. That's really interesting.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, like there's this Venn diagram in my mind, and also like a, <laughs> a lot of the does not equal sign, like the equal sign with an X, you know, a line through it, of like coaching right. does not equal. Psychoeducation. Coaching does not equal self disclosure. Um,
1: Right. Because
0: now there's been so much more conversation about the use of self disclosure in therapy. And I remember seeing some research among psychologists a number of years ago that was saying that upwards of 80 or 90% of psychologists openly acknowledge utilization of self-disclosure as a means for therapeutic growth and rapport building. And so it's not like we're not doing it. <laughs> right, But that's a really interesting point that you make. And suffice to say, my takeaway from this conversation is coaching is much more deliberate and boundaried than perhaps the average licensed clinician believes it to be because it lacks the specific legal and ethical oversight that
1: licensed professionals have. Right. I was, I was extremely pleased and relieved when I learned the materials from my coaching trainings, because the majority of the materials were pulling from evidence-based practices. You know, like I said, the CBT, we, they talked about, black and white thinking and coaching, actually. You know, but so like but but
0: but that opens up like more complication in my brain about like, well you're using mental health evidence-based practices in order to inform the services that you're giving, but it's not mental health care. And that's where my brain starts doing flips again.
1: And that's where I feel like remember how we talked about the training of counselors in our education is not to give advice, but inherent in a lot of evidence-based practices, psychoeducation <laughs> exists in a lot of those practices. So it's like, yeah, those um, dialectics of both being present, like we don't treat a DSM diagnosis, but I may be using some interventions that have been created for these diagnoses. <laughs> it's, it, and that's why I do think, uh, please, therapists, please go get trained as coaching and offer it in your practices, offer it as an additional service, because again, I I think we have that advantage in in knowing how to apply those concepts without messing people up more or our countertransference coming out or being defensive or judgmental or like, "Mm, I think you need to do some shadow work on that. Like, no, like, you know, as therapists, we understand the shadow from a Freudian perspective, like, and we can mirror that back. I'm wondering if some of this content is coming from a place that's repressed or disowned. I think our language can and again it's just different. I don't I think it can be really um sophisticated and helpful. Well, and right? I especially because we have the education. Yeah, go ahead. I I I absolutely hear where you're coming from and I
0: can also really see the place of coaching in the continuum of care. For me, training on medical necessity, again operating in a Colonial system of mental health care acknowledging that that's just a reality. So yes, that is how it exists as it stands right now in the United States, and how it's been for a very long time. But goodness knows we have clients who are in psychotherapy that may have come in with diagnoses that came in because they had a recurrent um, addiction to stimulants, and they're in treatment and our job is to work ourselves out of a job. And so we see resolution in a perfect world, ideally, of these symptoms potentially, but the client is still seeing value in therapy, but we, we almost start to see the stripping away of medical necessity. And so I've absolutely been asked by folks in my trainings of like, well, what do I do if a client is doing this? Because like for them, it's like a massage, basically. It's like a brain soul massage that I don't have generalized anxiety disorder. I'm not, I don't have a V code associated with what's going on with my child. I just want to be a more thoughtful parent, you know, whatever that is. And I can see where there's this hole there for coaching. And then there's a whole piece about payment and managed care and all of that. But I can see where this is an important consideration because we do have clients who are medically, quote, unquote, stable, who have stable wellness, if you will, and they no longer actually meet the definition of medical necessity for behavioral healthcare. And then we're actually technically violating some legal and ethical things there by continuing to administer services that are not medically necessary. And so then enter coaching is kind of the crossover to say, cool, well, you're not doing that anymore. You're not treating depression anymore. Now we're talking about almost enrichment and growth.
1: Exactly. And according to my licensing board, a a licensed therapist has free reign to use coaching techniques and coaching tools in their work as a therapist. And it's amazing. I think it can really um, strengthen your toolbox as a therapist, particularly if you've had training with coaching, but yeah, I think it's, it's a real advantage for therapists.
0: So Dr. Miller, we have covered so much and yet there's still so much yet to be said So you mentioned ICF. What are some other resources for clinicians who are listening going, maybe I should learn more about this coaching business?
1: Sure. ICF, the International Coaching Federation is one. And then the International Association of Coaching is a different one. And their approach is a little different, but they're another um, uh, organization that has standards and they offer credentialing. and and training for people wanting training. The Certified Life Coach Institute is one that I would highly recommend. That's where I received my certification from. And I would say if you are wanting to gain more knowledge about this or you want to get training and you're a listener, make sure that the organization is accredited by either the ICF or IAC those are the two that i'm most familiar with but you at least want to make sure that your training is you know accredited and regulated by some kind of body and um certification and credentialing are two different things certification means you have training as a coach and credentialing means that you have training experience and expertise so it's it's a more rigorous process and if A coach wants to work with an organization like C-suite executives or Fortune 500 or Fortune 5000 companies or governments or schools. If you want to work with one of these bodies as a coach, most of those bodies actually prefer that you're credentialed.
0: Mm, Thank you. Mm -hmm. Very important points. Thank you so much. You have just opened up so much information. Again for our listeners Dr. London Miller you can visit her at her website to learn more about her and her work. Thank you for coming here and kind of unbundling some of this information because it is so confusing and there's still so so many questions that I have so I need to learn more about it. Thank you for letting me know like this is not actually that simple of a concept. It sounds like it would be simple but it's not.
1: Um <laughs> oh. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It just deepens my understanding as I talk about it. So this was good.
0: Thank you so much, London. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.